Well, thank you, praise team. He is exalted, isn't he? And we get the joy of worshiping him this morning. You know, over the last several weeks, we've had the opportunity to acknowledge our high school seniors as they graduated, and then a week or two ago to acknowledge our sixth graders who are moving up to Drew and to the youth group. But today I want to acknowledge a group of several of our nice Nigerian students who've been a part of Gateway for the last four years who have just graduated from Alabama State. And so thank God, Savior, Jude, and Jeffrey. If you're here, would you come on up front? We want to, I want to say a word about you guys. So come on up here, guys. <clears throat> You guys come on up here and we want to we want to acknowledge you guys and let them know what you guys are doing next here. So all four of these guys have been part of the life of Gateway over these last four, I guess, four years that you've been here from Nigeria studying at Alabama State just down the road. And so thank God graduated in computer science. He had a minor in mathematics and computer information systems. I got my cheat sheet because I can't keep it all straight. Who did what? And is hoping to either go to grad school or work with IBM next and graduate with honors like all these guys did. And, and, and wave at him when I say so. Thank God. Next is Savior. Savior, wave at him so they know who you are. So this is Savior Samuel. He graduated also with honors in banking and finance and has already got a job with New York Life Insurance Company. So congratulations to you as well, brother. Okay, Jude and I'm going to do my best for your family name. Ajambo? Okay, Jude Ajambo. Graduating criminal justice and plans to attend law school. Also graduated with honors. So thank you for your And then Jeffrey Agbundu, am I doing, is that, is that, is that right? Is also graduated with biology pre-med with his degree, and he's pursuing a Ph.D. in biomedical science, so also graduated with honors. And so, brothers, we are so thankful in the providence of God. He not only brought you from Nigeria to Montgomery, but brought you to Gateway for these years. You've been part of the life of this church. I'm just sad that I only got to know you all briefly at the end of your time here. As I've come in about the time you guys are headed out, but we pray God's blessings on y'all with what's next. Now, before I pray for you guys, I also want to acknowledge the role that some of you in this church have played in investing in their lives, particularly Tom and Jan up front have been incredibly instrumental, and then Brooke and Bruno back there in the back. These two families have welcomed these four brothers. And you look like Romans 12 on the role of biblical hospitality, and these two couples have modeled it with these brothers and having them in our homes, doing Bible studies with them, sharing life, cooking them home-cooked meals, and just loving them in the name of Jesus, letting them have a place to come during this time. And so we are thankful for you guys who have invested so much in these brothers and just what biblical community looks like and modeling that for us. So guys, I want to pray for you all and just kind of commission you to see what the Lord's got for you next. So we are thankful for you guys. Father, I am thankful for these four brothers. We're thankful for Thank God and Savior and Jeffrey and Jude and Lord, just in your providence, Lord, that you brought them here to Montgomery. In your providence, you brought them to Gateway, and they were able to be part of the body here at Gateway for these last four years. Thank you for that. Lord, we are thankful as well for Brooke and Bruno and Tom and Jan and the way they have just loved them and welcomed them and helped them be part of the life here at Gateway. We are grateful for just the way you've arranged that and how our paths have crossed. And Lord, as these four brothers prepare for the next step, we just ask your blessings upon them. For thank God as he's looking at what to do next, if it's grad school, if it's working with IBM, we pray you grant him the wisdom he needs to know what that next step looks like and your blessings on that step. For Savior, we're thankful you've already provided a job for him. Thank you he already has this opportunity of selling life insurance and you would just prosper and bless 
bless the work of his business so he can provide for his family and that. For Jude, we pray as he prepares for, for law school and that journey ahead, that you just provide everything he needs and it would be a joy for him and all that he's doing in that. And for Jeffrey, as he's pursuing his PhD, Lord, I pray and you just continue to bless him and his studies as he continues with that. And Lord, I pray that you would just let for all these brothers, that you would be their first delight and the busyness of life and these busyness of these next steps for them, that God, that their joy in you would just be contagious to others. And Lord, I know just from talking to Bruno and Brooke and Tom and Jan, Lord, these brothers' faith is so strong. Their prayer life is so strong. And God, I pray wherever you place them sovereignly next in your assignment for them, they would be just contagious in the church you put them in, that you would use them to raise whatever church they're in, to have greater faith, to have greater prayer life, and just to understand your heart for the nation. So we just ask you to bless these brothers, not only in their endeavors, but also in how you want to use them for your kingdom purposes. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. We're thankful for you all. And then one more thing before we get to the sermon this morning. You know that we're taking a break from kids' worship this summer, so our kids are in the room today. So kids, we are glad to welcome you this morning. To, well, at least when I was a kid, we called it Big Church. So, so welcome kids to Big Church this morning. We are thankful to have families together as we worship the Lord. Now, we're continuing our journey through the Gospel of John. If you're visiting or if you're new, we've been working verse by verse through the Gospel of John, and we are in the middle of John chapter 6. Now, again, we start in January, and we're in John chapter 6 right now. And over these last about five and a half chapters, you've seen a lot of things. You've seen a lot of affirmations of who Jesus is. We've seen that Jesus is the eternal Word, that He's the eternal light. We've seen that Jesus is a Lamb of God, that He is a Son of God. We've also seen over the last five and a half chapters a lot of what we call discourses. These are conversations where Jesus teaches us about who he is. We've seen what it means to be born again. We've seen what it means to receive living water. We've seen Jesus talk about how he has authority to give life or to judge. But in addition to those things, throughout these last five and a half chapters, we've also seen a lot of signs. If you remember, signs are miracles, but they're miracles that are not there for the point of the miracle. They're there to point us as a sign to something else. And we've seen, quite a, we've seen four different miracles so far, four different signs that all show us that Jesus is the Christ, that show us that his glory and let us know more about who he is. We've seen him turn water to wine. We've seen him heal the official son. We've seen him heal a lame man by the pole. We've seen him feed the 5,000. And today we're come to a fifth sign, a fifth miracle that's going to show us more of God's glory and who Jesus really is. But friends, after today, there's only two more signs left in this book. Had a long way to go in John, but there's two more signs left. The next one's three chapters away, so we'll get to that in September, October probably on that. But as you think about that, as we get to the sign today, the big picture of why are these signs recorded? Why did John the Apostle write these signs down? And I think you're beginning to know that. John chapter 20, verse 31 tells us. We're going to put that on the screen, and we're going to, again, see if we can do it with a few words missing as we try to commit this into memory, because this is a big picture the book. So see if you can say it with me. Ready? But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Good job, everybody. I think we about have it there. We're going to try it next week with no words on the screen, okay? So we want to read ahead on that. The sign we come to today that John has recorded for us to help us believe in who Christ is so that we might have life in his name is a sign, a miracle that's familiar to many of you. It's Jesus walking on water. It's a story that's also recorded for us in Matthew's gospel and in Mark's gospel, but it's very short in John's gospel. In John's gospel, he gives no comments. He just says, this happened, this happened, this happened, and he moves on. Why is that? Why is it so short here? Because what John is doing is tying in the miracle we're going to see today, the sign today, what we saw last week, 
with the feeding of the 5,000. You know, this is where our divisions in the Bible can be a little bit hurtful more than helpful because we see that and see this is a separate account. Remember, what we saw last week with Jesus feeding the multitude, what we're going to see today with walking in the water happened in one 24-hour period. This is in one period. And so in John's mind, I believe these are inseparably linked on this. And so it's going to be what we see today is tied into last week. If you weren't here last week or just to get you caught up, Last week, we looked at Jesus feeding the multitude, the 5,000 men plus the women and children with just a few loaves and a few fish. He multiplied it, and 12 baskets of leftovers were, were, were found from that or were collected from that. And we saw particularly last week in that miracle, we saw John highlighting for us unbelief, a lack of faith. Because at the beginning, we saw the lack of faith of the disciples. They doubted Jesus had power to address the situation. We saw that, that unbelief, lack of faith, can be manifest as not believing in God's power. But we saw the ditch on the other side of the road was the response to the crowd. They believed Jesus had power, but they were going to use his power for their own personal gain. And we saw that trying to use Jesus to fix us, to use Jesus just to solve whatever we want, is also a lack of faith. Well, with that said, that takes us to the text for today of Jesus walking on water. Now, before we get to that, I want to ask you a question. Try to imagine as best you can, you're one of the disciples, okay? You're one of the disciples. You had just seen Jesus multiply the loaves and the fish. And Jesus had just sent you out with a basket, and you've just collected an entire basket of leftovers, as have your 11 friends. And you've just seen this miracle. I mean, can you imagine the feeling these disciples had at this point when they've just witnessed the impossible happen? When they've just seen again their master do a miracle that could be explained by nothing but God's intervention, God's supernatural work, and you got to be part of it. If, that, if you've been one of those disciples, what would you think next? Man, this is awesome. I want more. What next adventure are we going on, Jesus? What next mountaintop are we going to go conquer? What new position am I going to get? I mean, you've been in the midst of all this. What would they feel like? Do they think they could conquer any mountain now with Jesus right there? Were they expecting another glorious moment like they just had? Or would you be expecting a trial if you just come off of that experience? With that in mind, I want us to get to John chapter 6. I'm going to ask you to stand, please, in honor of the reading of the Word of God. We're going to be in John chapter 6. We're going to go back to verse 12 just to get the context. We're going to focus mostly starting in verse 16. For this morning. So, John chapter 6, verse 12, I'll be reading out of the ESV. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come in the world. Perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Now, verse 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough, sorry, the sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Would you pray with me? Father God, I thank you for your word that you've given to us, and Father, I pray that you would just let your word come alive to us this morning. We trust that the Holy Spirit who inspired these writings will now illuminate these writings in our hearts and minds. We might understand what you want us to learn from them. We ask you to do it for your glory today. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, and you may be seated. So there's one truth I want you to see from this particular text. And I want us to work through this, but it's this truth. Jesus sends us into the storms, yet keeps us in his care. Jesus sends us into the storms, yet keeps us 
in his care. Now, if that sounds strange, bear with me for a minute, and we'll see where we find this in text. So the first thing I want you to see historically is Jesus is the one who sent them into the storm. Again, think back to my question a minute ago. If you were just part of the big miracle, would you be expecting another mountaintop glorious experience, or would you be expecting a trial next? What Jesus does is he basically sends them into a trial. He doesn't give them the next great glorious moment. He takes them from a mountaintop and sends them into a valley, if you want to think in those terms. He takes them from a spiritual high and gives them a test. Do they really believe that he has power over all things? So look back at verses 16 through 18, where we see this. Verse 16 of John 6. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. Now, first question that comes to mind is, why in the world did they go down to the sea without Jesus? It's a great question if you're wondering that. Why would they even get into this situation without Jesus? Well, John does not tell us, but Matthew does. So again, we're, we're kind of at the, at the mercy of Matthew to fill in this for us. But the verse on the screen, Matthew chapter 14, verse 22, tells us what happened here. Immediately, he, who's Jesus, made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, while he dismissed the crowds. So did Jesus just suggest, hey, you guys do what you want to do, I'll see you in a little bit? No. Jesus made them get into the boat, made them go to the other side without him. It wasn't a suggestion for them. The same thing is repeated for us in Mark chapter 6, verse 45 as well. If we put that one up. Immediately he, Jesus, made his disciples get in the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. So don't miss that truth. The disciples didn't get ahead of Jesus here. The disciples obeyed Jesus. Jesus is the one who sent them into the storm. Did Jesus know the storm was coming? Absolutely. Jesus is God. Jesus knows everything. But we need to take it one step further than he knew the storm was coming. And it's one that can make us in our American culture a bit uncomfortable. Who calls the storm in the first place? I should put up a verse on the screen for us there. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 7. It's not the one that we typically run to for our devotions or our, our preaching, right? This is God speaking. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. So friends, who sent the disciples into the storm? Jesus. Who made the storm that he sent them into? Jesus did. And that Jesus creates a storm and sends them into it. He commands them to go. Friends, for them not to obey Jesus would be a sin because he told them to go out to the sea without him. And so the disciples obey, and look at what happens, the context of how they obey here. Back in John chapter 6, verse 16. <clears throat> when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. Now, when it says they got in a boat, don't picture a Disney cruise liner here, okay? <laughs> what you're trying to picture here is a small boat on the Sea of Galilee. We know from archaeological finds and from like paintings and murals on like walls and stuff of caves they discovered, this boat was about seven and a half feet wide, so maybe one of these sections, and about 26 feet long. So maybe this section, guys, y'all are the boat, okay? This would be a wooden boat. It would have a mast in the middle with a sail, and there'd be four places people could, could use the oars. So there'd be two people on your side. So Jonathan, you're one of the oarsmen over there, and you're going to be rowing away over there. You're going to be another oarsman over here. So y'all yeah, are going to be you know, rowing away. That's the picture of the boat. This boat could hold about 15 people. So that's what you're picturing when they go in the storm. Not big cruise liner, small wooden boat that about 15 people can fit in, about 26 feet by 7 feet in this. And notice they set sail when it was dark, just after sunset. The time everyone wants to be out on a lake, right, without a powerboat. They're going out at dark when Jesus sent them. 
And notice it says Jesus was not, had not gotten there with them yet. He had sent them ahead. What was Jesus doing? Jesus was back dispersing the crowd. Remember last week the crowd wanted to make him king? Or to kind of take over the, the, the Roman world there? And he wouldn't have anything to do with it. He was dispersing the crowd there. And he was withdrawing with other gospels to pray. So don't miss this. Jesus went away to pray. Well, he sent his disciples at night into a rough sea, into a storm. And quite a storm it was. Look at verse 18. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. Well, we know again from that area, the Sea of Galilee was about 600 feet below sea level there. It was surrounded by hills, and cool air would come in over those hills, and when it would drop down, hit the moisture of the area, it would create violent, unexpected storms. The best way to describe it is what one author said. He said, the atmosphere, for the most part, hangs still and heavy, but the cold currents as they pass from the west are sucked down in vortices of air by the narrow gorges that break upon the lake. Then arise sudden storms for which the region is notorious. And that's what happened to these people. Friends, today, still in the Sea of Galilee, with all of our technology and power boats, there's times that warnings are issued where boats are encouraged not to go out on the sea because the storms are too violent. If our power boats today have trouble in the sea, can you imagine what you guys in a wooden boat would be having trouble on a sea at night with just four people with oars trying to get the boat to move? And there's something with that that's easy for us to miss in this, friends. When we hear that they went to the storm and Jesus walked on the water, because it's so short, we kind of picture they got in the storm, there's a few lightning bolts, there's a few waves, they scream, Jesus appears, right? But that's not the timing of all of this. In fact, the timing, they were in the storm a lot longer than most of us realize. Remember, they left when it was dark. But Matthew chapter 14, verse 24, kind of gives us another clue to this. But, but, but the boat, by this time, was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. Then verse 25, and in the fourth watch of the night, he, Jesus, came to them walking on the sea. They left when it got dark, and Jesus watched them in the fourth watch of the night. Friends, that's 3 to 6 a.m., the way time was, was measured the time. Do you realize that? That means they were fighting the storm for six to nine hours. Again, we, we look at this and we see there was a storm, Jesus walked to them, Boom, it's over in a hurry. We're the American culture of always in a hurry. We're the micro culture where everything's instant. This wasn't instant. Jesus let them be in the storm for up to nine hours in that little wooden boat battling the waves here. And we see that in, back in John chapter 6 where there's struggle to make progress. Again, verse 19 here. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. Three or four miles is the only distance that they have made. Now, granted, miles was not the way they measured back then. It was stradia, and our translators kindly translated the distance given to us in the original text of stradia to miles because we wouldn't have any clue what it meant in the original form. But they traveled three to four miles. That's about halfway across the lake. The point where they were was about six miles across. And after six to nine hours at sea, they've made it only halfway across the lake because the storm was so bad. In fact, in Mark 6, it tells us they were in the middle of the lake. So friends, they've been trying to get through the waves and the storms for six to nine hours before this miracle of Jesus walking to them happens. Now, can you imagine what they're thinking? This is where I wish John would give us some more detail. Don't you wish he'd gone and interviewed some of them and like filled in some blanks for us? Like, what are you thinking when you get, when Jesus says, go and you obey, you get in the boat, you go out, a storm arises. Jesus, why'd you send me into this? And six hours pass, seven hours pass, eight hours pass, nine hours pass, and you're still in the storm. Waves crashing into you. Jesus, where are you? What are you doing? I can't, I can't only speculate. And I don't want to speculate to what they're thinking. I know if it was me, I'd be thinking, okay, God, where are you right now? One of the things that's so ironic on this, again, we get into danger with speculation here, but one of the scholars 
asks a question. They've just, again, these are linked. They've just fed the 5,000. They've collected 12 baskets. What do they do with the 12 baskets of food? They're probably on the boat with them. They're probably sitting on the miracle they've just experienced, so the feeding of the 5,000, sitting on the leftovers in their boat, and now they're in the middle of a storm. Will they believe that Jesus has power still to help with that? And we don't know what they're thinking. We can only know what we would think. James Montgomery Boyce, who was a pastor in Philadelphia for many decades, said this. He said, the first great fact of this story is that Jesus himself had sent them across the lake by boat, knowing full well what was about to happen to them. Realize that Jesus sent them into the storms, but, second part, yet he kept them in his care. Jesus kept them in his care. Back in John 6, look at verses 19 through 21. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Now he walks to them, but that's not when he becomes aware of their predicament. He knew about it before then. So I want you to put up Mark chapter 6. Again, let's fill in some blanks here from Mark's gospel. In Mark chapter 6, this is, tells the same account, but again from Mark's perspective. After he, Jesus, had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. Now verse 47. And when evening came, the boat was on the sea, and he, Jesus, was alone on the land. So where's Jesus? On the mountain. Where are the disciples? Fighting the storm. Now verse 48. And when he, Jesus, saw that they were making headway painfully. Wait, wait. He saw them? Where was he? He was on the mountain praying. Where are the disciples? They're in the middle of the storm. And he, Jesus, sees them making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, which we won't get into that much. That just means he was walking by for them to see him. So Jesus didn't become aware of their predicament when he walked out to the sea and went, Oh, no, there's a storm. Oh, what am I going to do? Jesus is God. He's sovereign over all things. He has a plan. He's working here. And when the time was right, he came to them. He saw them in their struggles ahead of time. Now, again, he works on his timing, not ours. If it's our timing, you see the first lightning bolt, Jesus, where are you? We want him right there, right then and there. But his timing was to let them struggle in the storm for six to nine hours and then walk to them. Notice he doesn't run to them. God's never in a hurry. God's never in a rush. God's timing is perfect. He's sovereign over all things. He walks calmly to them. And when they see him, they're terrified. We know from the other Gospels, they think he's a ghost. So Jesus not only comes to them in the storm when his timing's right, though he's been watching them the whole time, he speaks to them in the storm as well. Verse 20, But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. This, this, this phrase, it is I, in the Greek, is literally the same expression that's translated everywhere else, I am. So when we get to just, in the next week or two, we get to I am the bread of life. It's the exact same expression that is here. When I am, all the other I am statements you can think of, it's the same expression. He literally says to them, I am, do not be afraid. And his voice calms them. We'll get to it six months probably. John 10. Now, a little sooner than then. But in John 10, it tells us that the sheep know his voice. Friends, they thought they saw a ghost. What changed? They heard his voice. They're his sheep, his followers, and they recognized his voice. When he says, I am, do not be afraid. Afraid, and it calms them. Their fear turns to gladness even before the storm stops. When they hear the voice of Jesus in the storm, their fears go away. Verse 21, they were glad to take him into the boat. The storm hadn't stopped yet, but they heard Jesus' voice, and their hearts were filled with gladness. And then this other miracle here, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Oh, to be there. How cool would that be? You're in the middle of the storm. You've been laboring for nine hours. You see, you think he's a ghost. Your heart's full of fear. Jesus says, I am. Do not be afraid. You're relieved. He gets on the boat. Boom. Not just the storm stops. 
you're several miles away now. Man, wouldn't that make life easier in travel? But again, that's why the crowd is willing to, um, to make him their king because they could conquer Rome with that. But the point of this is Jesus safely got them to where he had called them to go. And don't miss that. Jesus is the one who sent them in the storm. Jesus is the one who speaks to them in the storm to calm them. And Jesus is the one who takes them through the storm to where he called them to go originally. Jesus sent them in the storm yet kept them in his care. Because we think about that text, there's something incredibly striking to me, and that's the parallels between this text and Psalm 107. Totally different context, but you see the unchanging character of God at work in both Psalm 107 and talking about how he relates to Israel, particularly Judah's deliverance from exile. And wait, it is here. In Psalm 107, look at verse 23. I want you to see and listen for the parallels between the miracle we just saw and what was written many, 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 many hundreds of years before in Psalm. Psalm 107, verse 23. Some went down to the sea in ships doing business on great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised a stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. The, the, the parallels are striking there. Who made the storm when, when, when the disciples sent into it? Jesus did. He's sovereign over it all. But look at verse 25 here. Who made the storm? For he, God, commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. God's sovereign over it. He's the one who made the storm. But who calmed the storm? Jesus is the one who calmed the storm with the disciples. Verse 29 here, he made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. God calmed it. Who brought them safely to their destination? Jesus took the boat all the way across the lake. They arrived at the other side. Here, verse 30, who brought them safely? Same thing. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. And how, what should our, their response be? And our response be, verses 31 and 32, let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love. For his wondrous works to the children of men. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders there. Friends, it's not just true for God's people in the Old Testament with Israel. It's not just true for the disciples. It's true for us as well. God sends us into the storms, yet he keeps us in his care. Well, that raises the question, why would God send him in the storm in the first place? God is sovereign. He can make the storm go away. He didn't have to do it that Why did he do it? Friends, because in this storm, he was teaching them. He was refining them. He was growing them. He was humbling them. They'd just come off this mountaintop experience of seeing God provide in miraculous ways of the feeding of 5,000. Now, the question is, will they trust him in the midst of a physical storm on this earth? Is he in control of all things? Can they really believe it? Why does he send them in the storm? Because he loves them. He sent them in the storm because he loves them. Friends, friends this miracle was for their good. Most of the signs we see or with the Jewish leaders watching, right? As he's proving he's the Messiah. But were there Jewish leaders watching this time? Was there even a crowd watching this time? There was no one seeing this miracle but the disciples. And we don't have any record of them broadcasting this, talking about, hey, everyone, listen to what happened while we were on the ocean. When we see what picks up next, there's no evidence they even used this as a, as a sign for others. Why? Because it was a sign for them. Because Jesus loved them, his followers, and was teaching them and did this miracle for their good, for their sanctification, for their growth, because he loved them. 
And friends, that's important for us because in our culture, there's this faulty idea that somehow God wants us to get from birth to death in the safest, happiest, easiest, most comfortable way possible. And that's just not true, friends. Jesus came to give us eternal life, not to give us an easy life. And we need to let that sink into us. Jesus came to give us eternal life. And we've talked about throughout John that eternal life begins now. It's not just going to heaven. He came to give us an eternal life that begins now, that radical transformation from above that starts now. He came to give us eternal life, not to give us an easy life now. And so the question for us is the question the disciples faced as well in this situation. If we have believed in Jesus, if we've experienced the radical transformation from above that comes from knowing him, if we've experienced eternal life now, are we trusting the same God who loves us so much to save us is also going to love us enough to send us in the storms and yet see us through the storms? He's going to send us in the storms as well because that's where we learn of our need of him. That's where we learn of his power and his greatness. That's where we learn more about his plans for us. And ultimately, the storms are his love for us because he sends us into it, but yet he also sees us through it. As I was thinking about that this morning, another text came to mind. It's not on the screen, so don't panic up there, Brad. I just got one more I just want to read to you guys as we think about this. But why does God do this for us? And I go back to James chapter 1, friends, because in James chapter 1, it says in verse 2, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Wait, that's odd, isn't it? Trials, you could just substitute the word storms here. Storms of life you face. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials, these storms of life, of various kinds. Now, friends, this is a promise. Again, it's not the, fr- the promise we normally frame and hang with a b- big, beautiful picture of an eagle and hang over our sofa, right? But it doesn't say when you face trial or if you face trials of many kinds. It says when. God sends his people in the storms because he loves them. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Why can you have joy in the storms? Verse 3, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect. You may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Friends, Jesus sends us into the storms because he loves us and he's going to be right there with us through them because he is producing steadfastness in us. He is letting these things have its full effect so that we can be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And so with that in view, friends, I want to ask you, are you in a storm now? Going through some trial of life now? If not, you will sometime. And what are you going to do when you're in that? What are you going to do? Are you going to struggle in your faith? Are you going to remember that God is sovereign over this and God loves me and God's letting me go through this for my good and for his glory? Do you remember in the midst of it that he is always there with you? And then what do you do when you're in the midst of that trial, that storm? The next verse of James 1, if you lack wisdom, ask God to give us generously to all without finding fault, and it'll be given to him. Friends, if today you're in a trial that doesn't make sense to you, God doesn't have to explain why it's going through, but you can ask him for wisdom of how to walk through this trial, this storm right now. When you face those trials in the future, cry out, James 1, 5, Lord, I need wisdom to know how to get through this now. But ultimately, in it all, realize if you're going through a storm, God has sent you into it because he loves you because he has a plan for you, because he wants to show his greatness in the storm and show you more of who you are and what it means to know him. Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful for your word, and Lord, I confess it's not fun to think about that you love us enough to send us into storms. Lord, we're thankful that your love is not a love that we would manufacture, a love that we have imagined, that you're not a God that we've created according to our own whims and how we want you to work. God, you're a God who is sovereign over all things. God who is outside of time, a God who is so great that our minds have a hard time understanding who you are. And God, I pray that we would learn more and more as your people how much you love us and how much you're using even the storms of this life to conform us more to the image of Christ. Lord, I pray for 
my brothers and sisters here who are in the midst of one of those storms, one of those trials right now. That God, that today their hope would be in you. Their hope would not be in the storm going away, but their hope would be that you are the one who is seeing them through it. That God, today they would not just hope in some intangible thing, but they would put their hope in you, Lord Jesus, who is walking alongside them, who will certainly see them through to the other side of where you want them to be. Would you anchor them in that truth right now? And Lord, for those brothers and sisters who are not in the midst of a storm right now, would you anchor that truth so much in their heart and soul that when the storms come in the future, they're not shaken by that. They're not battered, but they're looking to you and they're able to do what James 1 says that that can only be done through your supernatural work that we find joy in the midst of the storms because we know that you are sovereign, you are good, and you are at work. And Lord, I pray that our response to all that would be Psalm 107 that we would rejoice, that we would give thanks to you, that we would praise you, Lord. God, you are good. Remind us of how good you are. Would you remind us of your love for us. And may we return it to you in praise for all that you have done and all that you will do. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we sing our closing song?